Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week it is part two of our draft breakdown where we are talking about all of the day three picks starting with round four and one Mr. Contavious Street. We're actually recording this uh, at the same time that we recorded last week's show. Uh, so it's a little weird. New intro, uh, same show, kind of, sort of, almost. I don't think we've ever done this before. Uh, no, not really. But it is still May 16th, even though you're listening to this on, like, what, May 23rd? Uh, I think that's how math works. Sure, yeah. And and so we just finished up the rounds one and, or not rounds one and two, but days one and two. And we're going to continue with uh, our round four pick in Tavia Street. As a reminder, if you're tuning in late or you just listened to this and didn't listen to the old one, uh, we're going to use the same rubric we've been using all offseason to evaluate the players. We're going to talk about athleticism, production, where this player wins, and any areas for improvement or limitations, and then kind of wrap everything up with where this player fits. So let's get right into it, and let's talk to or let's talk about our fourth round pick, probably one of the more contentious picks the Niners made in this year's draft. And that's one Mr. Contavious Street who, on name alone, I already love the pick. <laughs> um, well, the reason he's a little contentious is uh, towards ACL uh, in a pre-draft workout. Um, Shh, Trimble, he can hear you. So no spark score is what that means first for this, for the athleticism, but also means that he's probably going to miss the entire season. So there's there's that too. Um, he does look, I, I will say so, for a player his size, which I think he's about... Uh, 280-ish is, is where he came in um, at, at the Combine, but looks like a really good athlete uh, for that size. Like, I'm not saying that he's necessarily, like, a great. He's probably not, you know, 80th percentile or higher, even even for interior defensive linemen. Um, but I, I think, you know, that isn't something that I have concerns about with his ability to transition. So with Contavious Street, when you look at his production over the course of his college career, he never graded over 80 for a full season in college, which, you know, isn't spectacular. His peak grade of 78.1 came in 2015. And overall, at least in the snaps that we've seen, it seems like he's just a much better run defender than he is a pass rusher. He's only seen one season where he managed the pass rush grade over 70. He just, just crested that 70 number, 70.9 in 2015 and he had just 62 pressures across 810 pass rush snaps over the past three seasons that's a pressure rate of just 7.6 percent again this is a this is a run defender not a pass defender but he's a run defender that can do some good things in the run game especially considering how much power he was able to display on tape yeah i think that's the the very first thing that sticks out about where he wins which is is being able to use that power i mean he's kind of uh an undersized guy, I guess, from a height standpoint, he's like six two, but he just plays because of that size, like plays with this very natural leverage um, and, and is consistently able to like get into the blocker's chest and, and really, you know, get underneath guys and be able to stand them up at the point of attack. Uh, and he takes advantage of that kind of advantage that he has just from a size standpoint um, with really good strength. Right. So you see him kind of be able to combine that and be able to move blockers gets really good extension with his arms to kind of, you know, again, once he gets into the, the chest there, gets that extension where you can really control the blocker. And, and at that point, you can kind of read where the runner's going, where the ball carrier is going, and, and be able to shed the blocks and, and be able to make plays that way. And that is something that does show up. I mean, when he does win as a pass rusher, it's almost always because of some sort of power move, right? Where he's he's getting into the chest of the defender, he's you know uh, long arming him, something like that. Where it's it's really a, a more of a power type move. He's not going to be a guy that really you know 
is he's not a Harold Landry type of player, right? Getting around the edge, winning with speed. That's just not his game. Now, he may not be super fast, but he is really quick. He's quick off the ball when he's looking to rush the passer. So there are there, oftentimes he that's not what he's looking to do. He's just looking to kind of set up his blocks or he's looking to engage and kind of read and react. But when he does say, hey, you know what? I'm going to get after this guy. He's got a really good first step. Yeah. And he is able to to beat with a little bit of quickness on a couple of first steps. And he's got a really nice swim move that's effective on the inside. So this is someone who, because of his ability to to really maintain leverage, he always seemed to be in leverage. Maybe that's because he's just a smaller, shorter dude, um, which is I mean, I, you would think that people would learn from the Aaron Donalds of the world that like, OK, yeah, you don't want someone who's six, four going up against someone who's six, two. But the two best interior defenders right now uh, in the NFL, especially from a pass rush standpoint, Aaron Donald, Geno Atkins, both guys were considered undersized coming in the league. Yeah, you, you, you have natural leverage when you are on the shorter side of, you know, six, one and. That's exactly where Contavious Street is able to to make his money because his hands are always over eyes. He's got leverage a lot of the time. And when you combine that with the amount of power that he shows on tape and his initial kind of first step or his quickness, and, and all of a sudden you've got someone who you're like, yeah, you, you could do a couple things with him. And, and his production on tape was actually really quite good. I, I didn't think that he... I thought that people, I think, thought he was a reach in the fourth round, mostly because of his injury. But yeah. I think if he gets back to, we watched a lot of his 2016 tape, and and if he gets back to kind of pre-injury form, which again nowadays an, an ACL tear is not like it, we're, we don't live in 1492, right? Like you're not going to die because you tore an ACL, and <laughs> it's we're, we're in a we're in a world now where good year, yeah, right? 1492, man, man, that's you Takes know what? Me back. It's just because I was in Spain recently, and so I've got Christopher <laughs> Columbus on the brain, <laughs> and there's a lot right, of things right. happening. You know, it, sure. It, 1492 was also when the Catholic monarchs Isabella and Ferdinand retook Spain after like it was like the second reconquest or something. I learned a lot on these tours. All right, all right, spent a lot of time. <laughs> Uh, at the Alhambra in Granada, and and yeah, it was it was a lot of things, lots of things. <laughs> Come for the football, stay for the European history. <laughs> oh, so um, where were we with fourteen ninety two? Fourteen ninety two ACLs and tearing your ACL ah, yes. not nearly as important as it was in fourteen ninety two. Checks, checks yeah, out. But but I do think that he can get back to to that state, and if he can, you have a player who shows that he can uh, you know, I'm kind of bearing the lead here but he can do really well against the run on the end but then also back up inside and has the power and leverage to do so successfully yeah so that's the thing is is I think some people have kind of viewed him as maybe an edge rusher because uh, he did play largely on the outside in college yeah. most of the snaps that we watched he was out there that's he's not, not an edge rusher what yeah I mean just from a pure body type you can tell him, like that doesn't look right when he's when he's out there I mean that's what he was asked to do and and he was, again, fine there, but I think really at the next level. And so you kind of get to limitations, right? And I think the, this limitation is largely based on what your expectation of him would be. If you view him as an edge rusher, he's not that guy. He's not somebody who's going to be able to win on the outside against NFL tackles. Like, it, it's just not really going to happen. That's not his game. And so I think the where he fits, actually, on this roster, and this is maybe another kind of point of contention, is... He's really a guy that, yes, he could maybe play some big end on the strong side, right, where he's lined up over tight ends and tackles in the run game there and and is able to do that in base situations, um, but really is a guy that should be inside and rushing the passer over guards. Like, that's where 
the quickness that he does have, the, the, the power that he plays with, all of that stuff is really great rushing the passer against guards, right? That's going to be a much bigger advantage for him there where he's just going to get stoned against tackles in the NFL. Like, it's just not going to happen. But the 49ers also have, like, I don't know, 17 players who kind of fit that mold right now. And so you wonder why take another one with a torn ACL in the fourth round. I immediately, when you said he's going to get stoned against, like, offensive linemen, I immediately thought Laramie Tunsil. Just both with gas masks on. Just getting it. to the gas mask. Getting it. But, okay, so so the Niners have a a ton of players with this profile. All right, let's go ahead and and list them because I think this is going to be a bit instructive. The ones that matter, right? One is DeForest Buckner, two is Eric Armstead, and three is Solomon Thomas. Okay, let's let's think about what that looks like next year when Kentavious Street is actually going to play. I don't think that Eric Armstead is going to be a 49er next year. The I, I just don't. The, 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 they picked up his fifth-year option. Uh, it's guaranteed for injury at this point, but that's all. And, and so I think at this point with Eric Armstead, you're, the Contavious Street is effectively the Eric Armstead replacement. Because this is the position that ultimately Eric Armstead's going to play. If they're going to play Solomon Thomas at Leo, DeForest Buckner's an elite three technique, and and you've got Eric Armstead, who is is currently the 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 big end, who may kick inside and rotate on the inside in nickel packages. That's what Street's going to do. But, and so, really, though, the thing that I would point out with that, so if you you start looking long term, right? Solomon Thomas is Leo for now. Eric Armstead replaces or leaves, right, and goes, which I totally agree. It, it it seems to make very little sense that they would keep him, um, and, and they're just going to let him walk once he gets free agency. Well, at that point, Solomon Thomas moves to a much more natural position on the strong side and base, kicks inside uh, in your sub packages. And right now, Buckner and Solomon Thomas are the guys that are eating most of your interior snaps when you're in, again, sub packages nickel, yeah. where you're, you, you are most of the time. And then so you start thinking about the other players there. There's also Sheldon Day who kind of, I think, fits that he's not really going to play base. Yeah, he's in, not going to be play there, but he's still an interior guy in sub, which is, again, we're talking sub is 60 plus percent of your snaps, right? It really matters more what they're doing there. Uh, and so I think he's still kind of like they, they have players there. They have other players there. Uh, it's just tough. I mean, I, I don't hate him as a player. I don't hate the pick because of the ACL thing. I do think that he's not a special enough player to warrant consideration that high uh, with the players that they have that fill that role. Yeah, I, I think that they're I think you're kind of the, the same argument that you would make for the for the defensive backs that we made half an hour ago but for you it may be a week ago um <laughs> the is the same argument i feel like that applies here where you have players that are versatile in similar ways where they can play either you know edge on the strong side or a kick inside on rushing downs that can provide the base of a rotation for sure. what that looks like on the defensive line and and we're talking about starting position let's let's presume solomon thomas moves over to starting big end and kicks inside well you still need someone who's going to be able to spell DeForest Buckner, so he does not have over a thousand snaps over the course of the year. You're still not going to want Solomon Thomas to have 800 snaps over the course of the year. You want him to stay around maybe five or 600. Good defensive lines, when they have a great rotation, their players don't play more than like four or 500 snaps over the course of a year. And right now, there are Niners players that are close to double that. And so I think that, yeah, he might be redundant, sure. And, and, you know, he is. I'm not arguing that point. All I'm saying is, 
the same kind of versatility where you want that rotation where it's like maybe he spells for a big end snap. Maybe he spells for a three technique snap. I think that all still works on the defensive line, just like someone who, if you have an injury, all of a sudden, you know, someone who played corner now can move to safety or someone who played safety now plays corner. Same thing happens on the defensive line. I think the reason that this isn't as big of a, the the reason this feels like a bigger deal is because you don't have the speed element on the defensive line yet. I think the, the problem that I have with it more so, because yes, uh, obviously rotation is big on, on defensive line. And, and I think that's something that we've stressed quite a few times this off season, especially like that's a big thing to go with. The reason why I'm more okay with it in the secondary than I am in this particular situation is I can only play two of these guys at a time. I have a three technique. You know, if I'm in base, I got one at three tech. I got one at big end. If I'm in nickel, I got my two guys and my two interior rushers. I can only have two of them on the field at one given time. In the secondary, those versatile defenders, I can have five, six, seven of them on a field at, at a time. And I can really find ways, creative ways to maximize all of them at the same time and get them on the field if I want to. I can't do that with defensive linemen. Like they're, they're limited in how many I can have on there. And so that's why I'm a little less, uh, I, I think depth is good. Depth is, is, is definitely key on the defensive line. I think there is a point where you can go too far and having, uh, again, Sheldon day, who I think played really well and is a promising young player as well that, that can play in, inside. You also, which we're going to get to Julian Taylor is another guy that you're drafting for that same interior position. He's going to be, he's not ever going to kick the end. He's like a, a three technique all the time is basically what he's done. And so you just have a lot of guys that are there and you can't really get snaps for all of them. Yeah. And, and I think that's where, when I think the overall number of players you carry for defensive backs and the overall number of players you carry for defensive linemen, I think matches exactly what you're saying. You, you, you keep overall between safeties and corners, like what, like nine or 10 players. Yeah. But for defensive, so. but for defensive linemen, you keep, you know, only six or seven. Right. So, so I think that those numbers that, that, that may not sound like a lot, one or two players, maybe three, but when you're talking about a roster of 52, that is kind of a big deal. And so I think that, yeah, you're right. You, you, you can't play all of them at the same time, but you also don't have to carry as many. And, sure. and so I think that it, it all, it all kind of evens out in the wash. I don't, I'm not like uh, this pick to me doesn't feel like the Warner pick. It doesn't feel like the McGlinchey pick. It doesn't feel like picks where you're like, yeah, like it makes sense and I totally get it. It does feel a little weird. Yeah. But but for me, it doesn't feel weird because of the ACL. The argument that's compelling for me with this is, is the Niners roster to a point where they should be worried about the future aspects of what the team is going to look like? I don't know the Niners roster is there right now. And I, and I don't know that they, they could have filled another hole. And, and this is where opportunity cost kind of becomes a thing is because it's like, yes, he may be a good player, but what did you give up to draft this player who's not going to help you this year at a position where you're already redundant? Um, that that's where This is where opportunity yeah. cost really begins to kind of, eh. And I want to save this for later, but there is a player there that I think is interesting to talk about that they could have gone with that went a few picks later um, where you start to like wonder about that kind of line of decision-making. But yeah, we'll we'll kind of save that when we get to the the larger takeaways and, and questions that we have at the yeah. end. Yeah. So overall, Contavious Street, I think where he fits, he's a depth player who can play big end and kick inside the three technique. Uh, likely better inside, at least based on the tape that we saw. Don't expect him to be an edge rusher. Don't expect him to be a, a passer, a pass rush force. This is definitely a run defender. That is um, much like one of David's favorite players, Tank Carradine, <laughs> elite six technique. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, in the making. <laughs> yeah, if he's anything like 
uh, uh, like Tank Carradine, which another ACL player. Uh, He will be awful for two or three years. He will move positions at some point and be good his last year. Drastically change weight a few times uh, and just be wildly frustrating for four or five seasons before we get rid of him. Can't wait. Yeah. (laughs) He's on, he's on oh, the- hopefully he's not that uh, just you know you get me going down the tank Carradine line that actually is a one we you know we talked about this this is uh, I guess now last episode um, but really for us like an hour ago um, talking about most hate I, I'm actually kind of surprised that I and I guess everybody else forgot about tank Carradine tank Carradine's up there uh, yeah and I think that's also because of just like everybody expecting him to be great and it's just like nah man that's not how it is <laughs> Oh, goodness. All right, let's get to the next player here in the fifth round, pick 142. That's going to be one Mr. Cornerback, DJ Reed at a Kansas State. Big 12 corner. Uh, but, boy, he's not big uh, because he's just he's just <laughs> he's coming in at 5'9", man. But you know what? He's got them long arms, and those long arms help. <laughs> yeah, man, that was a... I wasn't re- I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, 60 <laughs> so from an athleticism standpoint, um, good, not great. You know, above average, 62nd percentile. Um, really, it's it's mostly like a long speed thing. He's not like a, an overly explosive guy in that regard or at, have great straight line speed, but he did test well in the change of direction drills, cha- uh, tested well in both the jumps. And you mentioned he has like abnormally long arms and, and large hands for a player his size I and mean, he's like five nine uh 190 basically but he's got the hand size and arms of like a corner that's six three six four or something like that it's kind of very strange yeah so earlier today david and i spent a lot of time over the last two days watching film on these prospects and you put us in a room long enough and and we start to do really weird things uh david has a like a soft tape measure like a taylor's tape uh on his desk and i was like you know what Let's go ahead and just measure our hands just for scale. Let's see what's going on. <laughs> and, and yeah, and I've got bigger hands than Trent Taylor, which is my claim to fame. David has about Trent Taylor-sized exactly. hands. Exactly, yeah, Trent yeah. Taylor-sized hands. Uh, yep. And, and uh, DJ Reed has like an inch and a half bigger hands than, than we do. I think at this point, hands, which yeah. is like you always talk about. Uh, it, it always comes up every year uh, with quarterbacks at the combine, right? Yeah. How big are his hands? It's got to be at least like nine inches or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like ten inch hands, like and dude's five nine. Like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Yeah, it's it, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, that that someone who's that size, and and you look at him on tape too, and he gets he gets in his lean, he gets in his lean on the line of scrimmage, and you like his fingers are grazing his shin. I mean, they really are. They really are. They are and I, I, dude, I sympathize. I have unusually long arms for my size as well, and shopping bags are a struggle. <laughs> They are, dude. You you uh, carry problem, a shop problems you, that I've never dealt. You with. carry a shopping bags and you have to lift them up a little bit because they drag on the ground. It yeah. sucks. I mean, that's a. I think. I mean, yeah. I guess that exaggerates it for sure. That that's like a general short person problem. Though. I mean, fair. Yeah. Also fair. Yeah. Uh, but okay, let's talk about actual football stuff. DJ Reed production. Uh, <laughs> two seasons of playing time with him. So uh, really, yeah. Last two years, 2016, 2017, got significant playing time. Uh, graded incredibly well, actually, in, in both those seasons. So uh, had an 89.5 overall grade that was his top uh, in last season, which was fourth among cornerbacks. And that's based primarily on his coverage grade. 89.1 coverage grade, also fourth among corners last year. Um, and did a really good job of 
uh, kind of defending the deep passes. You know, we talk about that with cornerbacks a lot in this scheme. Allow just one completion on 17 deep targets. Deep targets are those targeted 20 yards or more in the air. Um, so it was really effective on those. Had three interceptions on those 17 targets as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for a fifth-round pick, it is. Uh, it would be hard to find many players that have the track record of production that DJ Reed had. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. In, in the fifth round, he presents a lot of value, right? Because where, where does he win? Well, he uses his length pretty well. He's able to challenge the catch point versus bigger wide receivers pretty consistently despite his size. He's consistently in phase and coverage. And this is, I think, the part that's really important is you, you didn't see many, if any, snaps where he was really, really beat badly. He always was in phase. And by phase, we mean like an arm's length away, which for, I guess, DJ Reed is a lot longer. <laughs> it's a longer It's a lot longer I distance. really need to know now. Um, I don't know if uh, Tracy, Fortnite's fangirl, yeah. she does the the five things to, what, five Five, five fun know. facts. Yeah. Um, uh, videos with play. I don't know. Honestly, I haven't seen if, if uh, just because I've been kind of out of the loop a little bit, um, if she's already done one with DJ Reed. But if she hasn't, and Tracy, you're, if you're listening to this, we need to know if grocery bags are a problem for DJ Reed. If he just, if they're dragging on the ground, if this is like a consistent problem in his life, we need the answer to this. I mean, he's 5'9, so maybe not, but I need a picture. But hey, 32 inch arm they're they're six three person arms basically so it's yeah. just like a slightly larger version of what you're going through there yeah so overall you didn't see very many snaps where he was beat badly he was in phase constantly he only had three coverage snaps with a grade worse than minus 0.5 and remember that when pff grades an individual play it's basically zero is kind of neutral and then negative is all the way to negative two uh, yeah, and- we talked about it with quarterbacks. I think that's a good way to frame it, right? The big time throws, the turnover worthy throws being kind of at the extreme ends of that grading spectrum. I mean, it works roughly similar in other positions as well. So the, the grades that are plus minus one or worse um, are the the kind of extreme plays, right? The, the really bad or the really good plays um, had very few of those this past season. Only three, again, that were at that negative one had no negative 1.5 negative two grades and three uh like two of his three penalties or or, uh excuse me two of his three negative one grades were penalties um so it just wasn't a situation where he got beat for big plays and was badly out of position very often we talked about during the the kind of lead up to the draft about how later in the the draft you want to take flyers on players that are either wildly athletic and you hope they can pick up the game or you take flyers on players that were wildly productive and you hope that that production translates to the NFL. You can hope they can continue to do those things well. And I think that's where DJ Reed lands. DJ Reed lands as a player who was remarkably productive in college. And then you hope that he can translate that production to production in the NFL. And, and, so, and I think overall that's the kind of profile of player that he is irrespective of the size. Definitely. And when you do get to the limitations, because obviously, you know, went to the fifth round for for a reason. I think um, the one thing that you immediately think of again is the height. And you just don't see a lot of five, nine corners have a, a you know a ton of su- success, especially on the outside uh, in today's NFL. And, and that was where he played primarily. So he was almost exclusively at right cornerback at Kansas State, had very few snaps in other positions. Um, and, and so it's just a question of whether like he's going to have to transition. You know, we talked about in, in the last episode with uh, Fred Warner and, and Tavares Moore having to kind of change positions from what they did in college. And, and Reed is really 
likely to be that guy. I mean, John Lynch, I think it was, mentioned that they do think that maybe because of that length that he has, um, that he could still find a fit uh, on the outside. But I think likely his spot is going to be inside if he fi- if he carves out a role. There also is some mention of him maybe moving to free safety. Um, they've seen a little bit of. So, like, he's, he's likely going to have to transition. I think that's largely because of the height. I think if he does stick at corner, especially, the one thing that we didn't really get to see in the games we watched uh, it was him in press all that often. Even when he was up close in the line of scrimmage, he was typically uh, more bail technique, so he wasn't really trying to get his hands on the receiver at the line of scrimmage, which is something that you would like. I mean, that was the thing uh, we talked about with Denzel Ward and why even though he was kind of a little bit undersized compared to the profile the 49ers like, we really liked him and in, in what he could do and his fit in the scheme because he showed those skills, right? Was consistently able to, to be physical with receivers at the line of scrimmage and disrupt routes in press. And we just didn't get to see a lot there from Reed. So it's kind of an unknown with him, at least based on, on the games that we were able to see. You know, we've talked a lot about versatility over the course of the, the, the episode or two that, that we've been reviewing the draft. And I feel like, DJ reads another example of that versatility where he can play slot corner in a pinch. He could probably play outside corner despite his size and he could probably play safety just because of his coverage skills overall. When I think of a player like DJ Reed, I think of someone like Terrell Brown. Terrell Brown was someone who the Niners drafted in the fifth round, similarly out of Texas. And Terrell Brown was someone who had, he, he didn't have a similar size profile because it wasn't that little. I think it was like 5'10, 5'11, but he was someone who, Played very, very well in college, played at a very good program, and you know got knocked down a couple pegs because of you know some marijuana arrest or whatever, and eventually was drafted in the fifth round. It took him a year to develop, but then he developed into a pretty solid starting corner. And he played, I think, he played for the Niners for what, like a, four or five years or so? Where oh, Wow, I think he even got a second contract. I mean, it he felt did, he, like he was there forever. He, so got, a, it, he it, got a second contract for sure. Yeah. And and then eventually he moved on, I think, like to the Patriots and some other teams or whatever. But he had a he had a fairly decent career. And this is the player who, again, produced well in college and was someone who just it took him a while to kind of figure out the NFL. But then when he did, he was a decent starting corner. I feel like that's the best case scenario for DJ Reed, where he's someone who, despite his size, because of, of what he was able to produce in college, he's got those skills and that toolkit there. You give him a year of seasoning, you figure out where he fits, and and then in a year or two, he could be a really solid corner or defensive back wherever it is that he lands, whether that be safety or interior kind of slot corner um, or even outside corner. Who the hell knows? Yeah, and I do like the idea. I mean, the the idea of trying him at free safety was something that I think we didn't really catch at first. Like, we kind of missed that comment. You mentioned uh, the guys on the PFF podcast uh, had, had mentioned him moving there, and so... Like, yeah, found eventually that that Lynch had made a comment that like, yeah, we think he could maybe play some free safety. Um, and I like the idea of trying him out there because I think it, it's a spot where he did play a lot. Again, we saw him more in off coverage and, and playing zone coverage a little bit. And I think those type of skills, right, being able to read route concepts, break on the ball on passes in front of you because you're playing off a little bit more. I think those are a little bit more similar to what you're doing uh, as a free safety compared to, you know, somebody who's in press man all the time. Right. So uh, I, I think, yeah, like that's a spot right now where if you're not really expecting Jimmy Ward to probably be on the team beyond this season, which I think is really my expectation at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, having somebody there that, that can back up 
uh, Adrian Colbert if you need it, and, and that can again fill in in, in multiple spots. I think. It, for a fifth round pick is it makes a lot of sense yeah so ultimately where he fits is anywhere as long as he can leverage uh, his coverage skills whether that be at slot corner outside corner or uh, maybe free safety so let's get to another defensive back that's marcel harris out of florida sixth round pick 184 another guy who didn't test he was coming off an achilles injury uh, but his production was pretty solid he missed all of 2017 with the achilles injury only had one season of, of significant playing time but in that playing time season he had a 74.8 overall grade uh which was uh not great but again we're talking about six round picks so you're looking at finding value in some way shape or form and i think the value for him is that he's a better run defender than a cover guy so you're looking at him as an in-the-box safety and you're hoping to get that value because he's coming off of an injury yeah i think i mean honestly he's a guy that we're we're not going to really get to spend as much time on just because there's not a lot of information on him right now like there's not a lot of tape that was readily available for him um i think there was one game from that 2016 season we were really able to watch um but again that was the only season that he played uh significantly didn't like from a production standpoint it wasn't great it wasn't like some of the other guys that had one year like more right Tavarius Moore had really one season at southern miss but was incredible during that season and, and really made the most of it I, I think to me, like based on that one game that we were able to watch, he seems more of like taking a chance on athleticism. If I had to guess if he if he did test, I, I feel like he would test pretty well. And you're just like hoping for a guy uh, that, that can come in, run around, hit some people like I mean, I know he had a comment about like he thought he was the biggest the hardest hitter in, hitting safety. Yeah. And the SEC. And, and so I think right now he's a guy that if he finds a spot, it's going to be as a strong safety type player in this defense. Um, but right now we just don't have a ton to go on from him. We don't have the athleticism scores to really make us feel comfortable there. Um, only had the one you know year of playing time with mediocre production, and it just didn't get a chance to see a lot of him. So I think he's really a pretty big unknown for us, at least right now. And I think largely that makes sense. I mean, he's a late, what, late six-round pick or something like that. So, um, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see if he's able to kind of find a spot with all of the other players that they added in coverage this year adrian colbert was another high weight speed guy the niners picked in the seventh round of course last year but yep. maybe they dip back into that florida well take another high weight speed guy and end up uh, finding a player that that produces maybe at that strong safety spot uh so you know one of the questions that i have now about all the because we've talked about all the defensive backs and you've got marcel harris you've got dj reed You've got, uh, you know, in the last episode slash a couple of hours ago, we talked about uh, Tarverius Moore. We talked about Fred Warner. We, we've talked about a lot of these defenders, and it seems like it almost seems like the team is just drafting past defenders as spaghetti and throwing spaghetti up against the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, and and honestly, I think that's a great strategy overall because that there is no there are no sure things in the draft. There there are. Every year you can go back and look at draft mock drafts where you have pundits saying this is a sure thing. This player is going to be great. This player is going to be awesome. And the player just doesn't pan out for one reason or another. And so in a game of chance, you want more opportunities to win. And, and, that's, and you want to win at positions of value. And, and coverage defenders are positions of value. And so I, I love the Niners are taking chances on these players, whether it be production players like DJ Reed, whether it be height speed guys like Marcel Harris, um, or whether it be everything in between. Because if you are able to land one of these guys, two of these guys, maybe three of these guys, because you drafted five, that's great. If you only draft three, 
then those three better hit. And that's not nearly as good of a strategy as drafting as many and seeing where they fly, where, where they land. And I'd even throw in McFadden, you know, who was a, an undrafted guy, yeah. you know, somebody we're not going to cover really in this episode, but somebody that we did talk about in the pre-draft process um, that, again, has some elements there that fit the profile of what they're looking for. And, and so I think, yeah, absolutely. Adding a lot of bodies to what I really feel like was the weakest area of the team last season, which is your your coverage ability really at all levels and aspects. Um, there were very few players that showed promising signs in coverage last season. So adding a ton of new you bodies. You leave Brock Coyle alone, God damn it. Hey, if your name's not Akella Witherspoon, you got some problems, all right? <laughs> um, so I, I think, yeah, adding a lot of bodies in, in that regard uh, to your secondary is something that I'm fully on board with because yeah, I mean, in reality they really only need, you know, if, if they get two, maybe three of these guys is a best case scenario that actually pan out and become productive players. Like that's a massive win that helps their defense tremendously. All right. So let's talk about the seventh round picks. Now let's talk about defensive interior player, Julian Taylor, who came out of temple. This is a person who, from an athleticism perspective, uh, again, another high, a, a plus athlete, He's a 90th percentile spark score. He's the fourth among the defensive interior. This is a seventh-round pick, flyer, height-weight speed guy. Love that he exhibits that kind of athleticism because his production, well, one season of significant playing time in 2017, had an 84.7 overall grade, ranked 28th amongst defensive interior players, and most of that was in the run game. Yeah, it was. So he was a little bit better. Again, one one season of playing time, a little bit better production in that one season than somebody like Harris did. But uh, yeah, didn't really do a whole lot as a pass rusher there. Um, had only 18 pressures over 213 pass rush snaps uh, during his career at Temple. Um, but as a run defender, yeah, did show some promising stuff there. I mean, had the eighth highest run defense grade among interior defenders last season had a a 12.3 run stop rate, which was actually the third highest in this draft class. It was just a a shade above Vita Vea. So um, yeah, what really showed some promising stuff there. And and like you mentioned, it's really, you get late in the draft. Yeah. Take a guy that's an incredible athlete, right. And see if it can, it it can figure it out. I mean, it's, I'm actually a little bit more okay with, with this type of pick considering where it came than somebody like street, just because, you know, you're taking them for similar reasons, I feel like. You know, maybe you do expect because it's a fourth round well, pick that you had a third round grade I on. I think the Street's got better production though than than someone like Taylor. I don't know that I mean it, Street's like highest grades never cracked eighty. I mean, he never had a season that was as good as the one season that Taylor put together, uh, from a from a PFF grade standpoint. So I think there were definitely some traits there that were promising. And again, that's there's a reason he was considered more of a mid-round prospect and was able to go there despite the injury. Um, but like, there's still a lot of question marks there. And when you get to, okay, draft position and, and what I'm able to get from that, like it wouldn't be surprising to me if Julian Taylor becomes the player that sticks more long-term just because uh, of the athleticism that he brings to the table, if they can kind of refine a little bit of his game. But yeah, he's right now, I think, a player that you're expecting to be uh, you know, a depth player Run defense wise, you're probably not expecting him early on to be on the field a whole lot in pass downs, and that's kind of uh, what he is. Yeah, dude, six five two eighty. Yeah, which is actually a little surprising. And he played. I mean, he was like almost exclusively three technique uh, in college. Like he's that's likely where he's going to fit. Maybe they see him as 
a guy that can play a little bit of nose if needed. But I think that's, I mean, that's yeah, a well, spot. That's why I looked up his height weight. Cause I was like, maybe the team just based on his run stop grade and, and his performance there, I was thinking maybe the team's looking for the, uh, the old Earl Mitchell replacement. And, and I, that's a player that would be great to replace, I think at this point. Yeah. And, and so when I saw his size, I was like, mm, that would be, that would be hilarious if we have, uh, both him on the defensive interior nose tackle and then you've got DeForest Buckner, who's also playing three technique. Um, that would be an interesting pairing, I think, on base, you know, 30% of plays or so on the interior. But um, I think it's an interesting point you make about him being more likely to stick than Contavious over the course of, of two years. Um, I, I don't think that's far-fetched. I don't think that's crazy. Yeah, I think it's just, again, and, and from a value standpoint, I think there, there are definitely question marks with both players, right? For Maybe for slightly different reasons in some cases, but they're going to largely occupy the inside of the defense, right inside of the defensive line. Um, and they're going to probably be competing for playing time in some regards. I mean, street again, maybe is able to steal some more snaps at that base end position. Um, but yeah, I think coming off the injury, having production that didn't really, I mean, in, in street had more playing time. He had more opportunity to put together, uh, you know, kind of more top end production and just never really managed to put that together. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. As a seventh round pick, I think you could definitely do worse than somebody like Taylor. All right, let's get to the other seventh round pick, and that's going to be one Mr. Richie James from Middle Tennessee State. His athleticism, well, wasn't great overall. 42nd percentile in Spark, but if there's one thing that we know about the profile of Kyle Shanahan receivers, it's that especially when he's looking at slot players, he doesn't care about overall athleticism. He cares about change of direction drills, and that's what the team values at wide receiver. And this is a player, Richie James, that is definitely more quick than he is fast. And he's actually somebody that has produced really well for a seventh round pick. I mean, um, you know, one of the things you look at with a lot of times late rounds, you're talking small school guys, right? That were able to produce against kind of inferior competition. And he was really that guy. I mean, 2017 was mostly a lost year because of injury. So he dealt with a high ankle sprain, eventually broke his collarbone, didn't really play a ton of snaps last season, but uh, was excellent in 2015, 2016, had overall grades of 89.0 or higher in, in both seasons, averaged uh, really an incredible number after the catch, which was 8.1 yards after the catch per reception over his college career, which, uh, again, is is really just kind of an absurd number. I mean, you look at a lot of the the top guys in this class. And it was something, you know, you really top out more in the six yard range, like somewhere in there. Somebody like DJ Moore was in the six yard range, right? Um, 8.1 is is really kind of an absurd number after the catch. And so, yeah, maybe you chalk a little bit of that up to competition for sure. But I think that was an area uh, that he was consistently very good at. So overall, where does Richie James win as a wide receiver? Well, he wins versus press coverage, which is something he consistently won over and over and over again. He's very, very good on his release, and he's very, very good at using his quickness in the short to intermediate area. It helps him separate underneath, and he does a pretty good job finding openings in zone coverage. So overall, this is a player that profiles more like a slot player. And he looks like a good route runner when he faces man coverage as well. So he wasn't limited to just beating man coverage or zone. He was able to do both effectively well. And he worked the seam well from the slot. So when you think of the type of player that he is, he's definitely someone who projects and profiles to be more of the slot player that Kyle Shanahan wants, especially when you think about his, his ability after the catch. You mentioned it earlier where he had that ridiculous yards after catch number and and really, a lot of it was screen after screen after screen. We saw them run 
a ton of screens. Had a lot of targets, and and it was a a lot of different screens. I thought sure. we were looking at like some Greg Davis circa two thousand five film <laughs> with, when it came to the number of screens that he was running because it was I mean it was a lot of screens, but he was able to do some good things with them after the catch. And it's part, it's part of the reason why his yards after the catch number was so high. Definitely. You saw him. I mean, one of the first things when you're looking after the catch ability is you want to see them at the very least consistently get what's there, right? If you can't get the yards that are available and, and you're consi- uh, like make it, trying to make more of what's there, it, it's just it becomes more of a problem than it's really worth for the big plays. So you want to see them maximize the yardage available, but then you do see him, like able to to make guys miss and to create yards that weren't there initially, right? And create kind of some bigger plays after the catch. Um, so you see that on occasion. I think, yeah, that's really an aspect of his game uh, that fits really well because you look at what this offense does, right? And kind of the core parts of the passing game. And it's Kyle Shanahan's really good at designing route concepts and getting guys open over the middle of the field. And Jimmy Garoppolo is really good at putting the ball in the money in that short and intermediate area to to give you an opportunity to to take advantage of the space created by the play concept, right? So those two things work really well together. Having receivers who can then really maximize what's there after the catch and maximize those opportunities, I think, can be potentially really valuable. So that was an area that he excelled. Also had really good hands. I mean, we talked about this with Pettis, and we talked about Shanahan, what is he like in receivers? It's very basic. You get open, you catch the ball when it's thrown your way. Um, he had a ton of targets over the over three seasons, so 359 targets uh, over over his last three college seasons, only 18 drops, which is not quite Trent Taylor good, which was like a 3% drop rate yeah, or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say, it was like that. a 97%. Um, yeah. But it's, it's really good. Well, there's a reason that he was the seventh round pick, though, and that's because he's got some limitations. And one, he lacks pure straight line speed. He had a number of plays where he had an opening and just wasn't able to run away from the defender. He's not going to. And this is, again, middle Tennessee state. Yep. He's not able to run. He's not able to run away from the players that he faces at middle Tennessee state. He's not going to be able to run away from pretty much NFL linebackers. Yeah, I mean, you see some of those like top athletes, you know, that are that are on NFL defenses now. And it's like if he was struggling to really create the big, big plays like there was there were times where that really good after the catch play could have been like maybe a touchdown if he had yeah. a little bit more speed, right, to kind of break through a seam. Uh, and or just he didn't gets caught from quite, behind or yeah, didn't quite have that like that last gear to be able to, to separate and run away from guys. And that means that he's not going to be a threat down the field. It's just, it's not going to be something that he's going to be asked to do often. And, and he doesn't excel when he's asked to do that, which he wasn't asked to do it often. But when he was, it was like, oh, all right. Man. Yeah. It was some of the seam stuff, right? So it was like, there were, there were some plays like most of his downfield targets where uh, him against zone coverage, getting in that area that's behind the linebacker in front of the safety. Maybe I think there were, there were a few targets where we saw him like try to go up and make some catches over a safety. It was kind of like, that's yeah, I, I don't see that being an area of his game that really translates all that well. So I guess the, the real question with him is, do you think he either a makes the team or, or B if he does presses Trent Taylor for playing time? Um, I don't know that he's taking a lot. I, I still am a lot more comfortable with Trent Taylor, um, you know, and, and what he's able to do. I mean, it would not be surprising to see Richie James get snaps. You know, I, I don't I think Shanahan's a guy who doesn't mind like having a bit of a rotation at receiver and kind of getting different guys involved and and using them in different packages. So 
seeing Richie James get on the field uh, wouldn't be terribly surprising to me, but I, I don't think he's like overtaking the primary slot receiver role uh, right away. Like that would be very surprising to me. I think he's competing. I mean, you're looking at guys like Kendrick Bourne, you know, in that realm, be- clearly below the top four now where you have yeah, Pettis, you know, assuming yep. you're, you're going to try to get your second round pick involved. So beyond those guys for that, like fifth, sixth receiver position on the roster, like that's where he potentially fits in. Yeah, I think for me, that's the, they fill out or they round out the last two spots, right? Because you think of you're right. You do have the four now. You're not going to cut a second round pick. Come on, let's be real here, right? So at that point, you're carrying five or six receivers. And I think usually Shanahan carries somewhere between five and six. He leans six. Yeah. So when you think about that, you've got two spots left. You've got Kendrick Bourne, which you know the team is high on. But then, really, who is your backup slot person? And and while we know that we talked about Pettis in the last episode being able to play that, you don't have someone who really fits that change the direction mold quite like Trent Taylor does. And and right now, the team you know d- doesn't have that player, and so I think that that becomes the other depth spot. Yeah, I mean, the only other guy that you look at where the roster is at now, and it's like. Aldrick Robinson is the other player in and that I conversation. Think, I think and he's I don't the guy know. that gets cut for for effectively for Pettis. Yeah, and and I mean, yeah, you look at the other names like there Lewis right now. Murphy. Lewis Murphy, like Victor Bolden Jr., like none of these guys. I mean, I think it's really between, like realistically for those final one, maybe two spots, you're looking at it, guys like James, Kendrick Bourne, and I would probably put Aldrick Robinson a little bit ahead of those other guys, but but it's it's that kind of group, right? So I think the opportunity to grab one of those final spots is definitely there for him, and I think he's shown enough um, from a production standpoint. I mean, Trent Taylor again was a small school guy, but there there reaches a point where if you do certain things well and you produce consistently over an extended period, like you got to kind of think that maybe some of that's going to translate. Right. And so I think there, there is an opportunity for him to get snaps and get a roster spot. So I think that's going to be the the first overall takeaway from the draft really is, is let's talk about the, the draft takeaways and final thoughts. As we wrap everything up, we've talked about all the players at this point that we've drafted. We haven't talked about any of the undrafted guys, but really the main guys McFadden. And we talked about him in in some of the pre-draft stuff. So the, the, the big, one of the big takeaways I think from the draft and, and we're not going to grade the draft. We're not going to tell you whether they got an A or a B because that's all irrelevant. We'll find out in about three or four years, whether or not this draft was good or not. But one of the, the key takeaways is how the team chooses to find value. And it seems like they consistently choose to find value in one of a couple of ways. Either a, they look for small school guys like Trent Taylor or like Richie James, or they try and find a player where there there's some injury that knocked them down. Whether it be um, I, at this point, it's going to be Contavious Street, um, or it's going to be Marcel Harris, and they try and find that value later on in drafts. And it's not a bad strategy overall, I think, especially when you get to later rounds, when you get to that day three area. You've got to find value somewhere. You find inefficiencies inefficiencies in the market, and those are two I think that the team has been able to exploit. So far with Trent Taylor to a relative degree of success, we'll see if that's the case with Richie James. And I think it's really interesting. Um, Joe Banner recently had a comment um, about a study that they did when he was with Philadelphia and essentially saying, okay, when you have late round picks that actually pan out and, and become productive NFL players, like what's the profile for those guys? And the two most common things that, that came up were small school guys and guys that had some sort of injury that kind of knocked their value down. 
and it, and it kind of makes sense, right? Because the 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 likelihood that you're going to find a player who was healthy and started for three seasons and, and he played at Alabama or Ohio State and he's down there in the sixth, seventh round, like those players get, uh, you're watching a ton of their games. It's not easy to get or not difficult to get information on them. Like most of the time, you're going to have a pretty good feel for where those guys are at. So the likelihood that every other NFL team messed up by letting one of those guys from a big school slip down to late rounds is a little kind of less likely, right? So you want to get guys that teams are questioning the level of competition they played because they went to a smaller school, right? Or there's questions about whether uh, you had a, you had a guy that showed maybe some higher end ability, but injuries prevented them from being able to do that consistently, especially in their most recent season. So I think it it makes some sense when you get to later day three, especially fifth round on to really kind of focus your attention on those type of players or going. I mean, one of the other routes that we've talked about, which I think uh, is is something that they've kind of done uh, to a degree, which is just go after like the crazy athlete, right? And see if you can make it work. And that's another type of strategy. So I think there's there's ways you can go. But yeah, you should you should try to focus on, I think, specific areas that have a realistic shot of finding a role. The other big takeaway is that the Niners aren't just looking for athleticism flyers late in the draft, but they're looking for athletes everywhere on the roster. And athleticism is something that is a theme that runs through everyone they sign and everyone that they draft. And it's an important factor for the 49ers. Last year, of course, we were able to identify Matt Breida as someone because he was a super high spark player, overall athlete. And and that turned out to be something that ended up proving very, very a, a good signing for the 49ers. When you look at the draft class this year, you've got Warner, Moore, and Taylor, all of which are top-tier athletes. And basically, everyone outside of Richie James had an above-average athletic profile for their position. And Richie James, of course, overall as an athlete wasn't great, but he did have the thing that that Kyle Shanahan values at the slot receiver position, and that's the change of direction skills, which is exactly what Trent Taylor had and why he was drafted in the fifth round as well. Definitely. I think that's zeroing in on receiver and, and the profile that, that Shanahan likes, I think, is important and something that we've we've really learned over these these two off seasons now with this regime. And it's, you know, I, I think you can pretty safely stop looking for the big contested catch guy that that's really all that they can do, right? That the view is a red zone threat. I just don't think that that's what he likes, you know, I think, and that's proved now with, with the draft classes, with the signings that they've had uh, in free agency for these two seasons, like that change of direction ability. So when you're looking at athletic profiles in the draft, it, rather than looking at that overall spark score and that kind of composite number really want to focus in on, the, the change of direction drills and then whether that translates to the ability to separate, right? Cause that's the key thing. Again, he likes guys who can get open, separate away from defenders, and then you got to be able to catch it when it's thrown to you. Those are the two kind of key things that seem really basic, but are really important uh, to playing receiver in this scheme. So I think that's kind of the one position right now. I think that we've identified that's maybe a little bit different than the rest and that we're not looking necessarily for just great overall athletes. And if last year the 49ers really focused on uh, kind of bringing reinforcements onto their defense, well, this year it seemed like supporting Jimmy was a theme early on. The Niners picked, of course, the best tackle in the draft with their first pick overall. They traded up for a versatile wide receiver they wanted in the second. And, and man, it seems like when the Niners get set on a guy, they're like, they're like the hopeless romantics of the draft. 
they want they focus in on a person. They're like, I want I want that person. I want a relationship with that person. God damn it. <laughs> Uh, and and that's what it was with McGlinchey, and they traded up to to get Dante Pettis as well because when they zero in on their guy, they're going to get their guy, and and those were two players, and those were two players that that they thought could help Jimmy Garoppolo out, and I mean the offense needed some some talent. It was, it was time to start spending some capital on the offense outside of Jimmy. Yeah, um, and, and I think offensively these two seasons that's really stood out. I mean, I, I think largely it's been. Pretty good, right? So I think you look at some of the players, like Trent Taylor was a player that Shanahan loved that really wanted to add, one of his favorite players in last year's draft class. Um, I think Jarek McKinnon, even though you know we thought that, okay, maybe that's a little little more than we thought that Jarek McKinnon was going to get paid in the offseason, makes a ton of sense, right? And he's going to be a player that uh, I think is incredibly effective in Shanahan's scheme. You have some guys like you know Joe Williams, who's you know TBD on him, CJ Bethard, who he really fell in love with. It's like, okay, was that actually worth a third round pick? Not sure yet. Um, you know, so it, there have been a couple of, of maybe questionable decisions there, but I mean, I think largely that's been the theme this offseason offensively, right? Uh, it was, it started with McKinnon and, and kind of Richburg as the guys that they really targeted and went heavily after in free agency and kind of had to have these were the, the ones on their list. And then now you have guys like Dante Pettis, Mike McGlinchey at the top that was like, okay, McGlinchey is supposedly their guy at nine, no matter what, if he's there, Pettis is somebody that they traded up to get, even though there was still kind of some other talented players on the board at that time. So they've really set their, their eyes on specific players, but they have really kind of overhauled the offense, which was something that when they, when this regime first took over, was something that's like, look, man, I don't know how many players even on offense right now. Are it was bad, man. Around. It was um, bad. So you have a remade offensive line effectively. Like, I think Joe Staley is probably going to be the only starter from last year, unless Tomlinson manages to to grab one of the guard spots. But otherwise, you're looking at at least three, possibly four new starters in the offensive line. Obviously, you have a new running back that you're bringing in there that's likely going to be your lead guy. Uh, and then you have a few new guys kind of in the past game now with with James and Pettis and whatnot. So, yeah, I think adding some top talent, uh, supposedly, you know, top of the draft type talent uh, offensively is something they haven't really done in a while that that's good to have. And then my other big takeaway is that that versatility is key, especially when you're looking at coverage defenders at the top of the 49ers wish list. You've got three coverage defenders in the middle rounds, Warner, linebacker, Moore and Reed. And Warner and Moore have extensive experience playing multiple positions. All three will likely play a different position than their primary role in college. And this this versatility versus specialization, you know, we, we talked a bit about it. I think it was on the last podcast where you, when you've got players that, you know, or when you've got a 53 man roster that you've got to fill out and you have limited space, you want and need your players to be able to do multiple things to survive the rigors of an NFL season. All of a sudden, your your roster becomes a bit more flexible and you can survive what happens in the NFL because injuries are a matter of if and not when. And so it seems like the Niners are really valuing versatility as opposed to over-specialization, which seems to be what other teams tend to, to prefer. Yeah, and I think that's kind of largely the direction the NFL's heading, right? Like we've, we've talked a lot this offseason about the value of coverage defenders in the middle of the field, right? And kind of how that's maybe been this undervalued thing that teams aren't spending quite the resources on that they maybe should be. Um, and, and so the fact that the league is trending that way, because you talk about, you know, what's happening offensively 
And it's all about you have these guys that are mismatch weapons, right? The, it's the running back like Jarek McKinnon who can also split out wide and in the slot and be able to run uh, pass routes like a receiver. It's tight ends that can split out and do the same thing, right? You have players on offense that create these mismatch problems based on where they line up, right? If you take a guy who maybe traditionally is an outside player, but you stick him inside and you don't have a, a, a de- defensive player who can match up there, right? You're kind of hurting. So you're seeing defenses trend toward these versatile players who can also match up with these problems that offenses are creating. And I think they've really gone hard that direction this offseason with the players that they've added defensively. And I think while, you know, again, we'll, we'll see it, it only works if you find the right players, right? That sort of versatility approach. Um, but I like, going that direction we should all just start watching rugby is what i'm saying it's we're all just going to be rugby players here and like i'd say like 15 years it's just all going to be free-flowing rugby <laughs> get ready for it it's going to happen trust me uh and so finally i guess really we had a, a couple of questions david i think you had a couple of questions for me about the, the what if game you've made reference to it a few times now so yeah and and during the draft i remember i i was tweeting a lot about opportunity costs right what did you give up in order to make this pick so let's let's play the game let's play the what if game So I think it's interesting to look at at some players and see based on what we looked at pre-draft, right? Are there any spots that can really be identified where you felt like they made a mistake passing on players that, that were, that were available? I think for me, one of the first ones that jumps out, uh, that's kind of an interesting conversation is actually Dante Pettis, right? So we talked about Pettis a lot during the last episode and, and overall, like, like what he brings to the table. I don't know that he's, uh, necessarily like a special player that I'm expecting to do huge and in, in great things, but you can see the versatility there, the ability to play multiple spots at receiver for this offense, and, and obviously the punt return ability that's great there, and, and it was something that they liked enough to be able to trade up and go get him. But some of the other players who were still on the board when Pettis was selected in round two, Josh Jackson, who went the very next selection, um, Dallas Goddard, top tight end uh, that we felt in, in this draft class and something that the Niners other than Kittle really don't have another tight end that, that is, is all that great. Um, Anthony Miller, who just happened to be another receiver that uh, was somebody we talked about a little bit. And then a couple of cornerbacks too. Uh, and again, this is before we really went on the run of the other uh, d- defensive players, but guys like Dante Jackson, Isaiah Oliver that were still there. So uh, it, one, are you okay with passing up those type of players um, in order to select Dante Pettis, and two, is there anybody else that happened to stick out to you um, over the course of the draft that you thought maybe I would like that if they went in a different direction? So I would say overall, I am I'm fine with the Pettis pick, and and I'm I mean at this point, it, it's difficult for me to differentiate the hindsight versus the in that moment because it, in in that moment, using hindsight, I'm like, well, I think we got some other really good, valuable kind of pass defenders later in the draft. And I really, especially with Sherman and with Witherspoon, I think they could have used another corner, but a second round corner at this point who doesn't start. I mean, I know that you can never have too many pass defenders and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But it's like I, I want I want a player who's going to hopefully have you know, some kind of impact on the game on a fairly regular basis. You know, we, we talked about Pettis being that Trent Taylor snap count. Um, I think that's that's what you that that's great for a second round pick. It's fine. So I I don't know that Goddard. I don't know that that the team wants to build that two tight end kind of offense. Um, and and so I don't think I think they're fine with Kittle 
and I think they're fine with with signing another tight end and have that be that. Um, I can see a case against you know Oliver and Jackson uh, and Miller. The only uh, Josh Jackson, the only one I think that's kind of like mm, kind of tugs at me is that Dante Jans- Dante Jackson pick, only because I feel like that slot corner is where things are most unsettled on the starting uh, kind of back line. Yeah. And and while I think that you know our, our starting slot corner is Kawana Williams is is fine, I don't think he's great. I would love to have brought someone in like Dante Jackson in to compete at that spot specifically. Yeah, because I mean he was a guy right that we talked about as like okay if they trade back in the middle of the first round, this is is somebody that they might want to target there. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think him and, and Goddard are the two guys for me because I do think that Goddard has some some more value there right then and they do put two tight ends on the field a lot i mean they do i probably think that the juice can handle some of those second tight end duties but they go with the heavy packages enough that having another tight end especially one that you can really use as another receiver like you yeah. can you can put him out and you know we, one of the things we mentioned with pettis that was great was like he does kind of bring that red zone element that people thought that they were lacking and the ability to, to win on the, on some of the fades and stuff there. And Goddard was just like a complete fucking monster in those situations. So those are the two that if I am going to question it, like that, that really stick out is like, okay, I'm, I'm going to keep an eye on this. And like, maybe I see a situation a couple of years where this hurts a little bit. And I, I, again, I think ultimately, you know, going after Shanahan does have a, you know, again, a good track record of identifying receivers that fits what he wants to do. And so th- there is an element of like kind of trusting him to do his thing there. But I think what hurts me about the Pettis pick is less so the player and more so what it costs to move up to get him. Yeah, because I, I don't I'm not a huge fan of trading up because you rarely ever win those trades just by and large unless you get a quarterback and that quarterback is good. But it, it's just trading up is not usually a. Um, it's not usually a good strategy in the draft because of the capital you have to give up to make that work. And, and to me, this is, this is an example where the Niners falling in love with the player ends up costing them more than if they just sort of stood pat and drafted a player that, that had a value that fell to them. Um, th- that, that's where I think I wish they had more pools of players. Like we're happy with this pool of player and, and maybe they thought that their pool, their pool was getting depleted such that they had to trade up to get this guy. I don't know that that's that that decision making process over time is going to lead to successful outcomes. So that, yeah. that's and the giving part. up that third round pick. You know, that was really the thing is if they sit like I'm not convinced that necessarily people were so high on Dante Pettis. Maybe that's wrong. And, you know, maybe maybe they had more information and, and knew that he was going to go off the board pretty quickly. But like getting him, their original pick was at 59 is the one they traded yeah. up from 44 so, to 59. Yeah. You know, whether he would have been able to last his 15 picks, like, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like that's maybe a decent chance. And then when you add that pick again at 74 that they gave up and, and looking at some of the guys there that you maybe could have added as well, like, I don't know. You know, yeah. it's always, it's always kind of tough. Um, obviously it ultimately will work out as a positive if Pettis is the player that they think. But I think going against that sort of overconfidence in a player evaluation in the draft is something that you do have to work against. Um, I would say, yeah, the, the rest of it, I didn't really find too many um, issues. I think the one thing that was interesting for some people maybe was uh, the fact that Josh Sweat went two picks after Kentavious Street did. Um, and I feel like, you know, he again, he was a player that we weren't super into, um, but taking a chance on a super athletic edge rusher there as opposed to a, another interior guy that's coming off an ACL. Like, okay, maybe I see that argument. 
I also like Maurice. If you're going to take that interior, Maurice guy, Hurst, Marie, and especially with the injury. I mean, I know that that what Hurst is dealing with is potentially very, very different. Um, but man, this is a guy that was like, if he's healthy and on the field is like a top five player in this draft class. So like maybe if I'm taking a risk at this spot, I'm looking there. So that was like maybe the only other one that yeah, that the, I, it was worth questioning. Maybe I think that we were, we were not so high on Josh sweat, you know, in part because of where we thought he would have needed to go based on the quality of this edge class, because Josh sweat was at times talked about as like a second round pick. And so we thought that because of the lack of edge rushers in this class, that you would need to get someone of Josh sweats caliber, which is typically a fourth or fifth round pick in the third round and i thought that was just an extreme overpay for someone like sweat when you're talking about the fourth round though i think that's where you start to get into like yeah why not take a flyer on a guy who's a high athlete who may be able to give us some speed off the edge at leo um i I do think that you know in retrospect josh i I could see the argument for josh sweat instead of contavious street and and i do think maurice hurst like you they would have had a fantastic guy but maybe the medical took him off the board but you know yeah it it is what it is i think the next question so kind of touching on with the josh sweat stuff i i mean are you upset that edge rusher is completely absent from this draft draft class i mean not really because we i mean our stated position was harold landry or bust yep I'm, i'm probably more upset that we that we didn't get landry somewhere in the second round um, because I mean, he went at 41, I think to the Titans and we, right. dra- we traded up to get Pettis at 44. So even if we would have traded up at 44, you know, we, maybe we were trading, you know, we, we wouldn't have been able to, to get him anyway. Yeah. So that, that part I think sucks a little bit, but I, I don't think that this class was super strong when it came to edge. And so we were always, we were not fans of taking a guy just to take a guy. There had to be some real value there. And, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know that this class offered that much value, even to the point where we're talking about Josh Sweat and we're like, eh, maybe in the fourth round, like I could see a case for that, but I'm not like, oh my God, this is outrageous. Like that, that's just not where this edge class was. So I'm not really all that mad at all, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think from the position of like, even though there's been with this regime, I think some decisions where you're target, they've targeted players at positions that aren't necessarily that valuable and kind of overpaid for them. And that's really, I think, been the one issue that we've had uh, with Shanahan and Lynch so far, um, the idea of just skipping out. I mean, this was a terrible off season to w- need an edge rusher, right? And so even though it's a big need, the fact that they were able to kind of restrain themselves and not go after somebody and overpay in free agency, not go and get one of these guys who had a ton of question marks in the draft and likely weren't going to pan out. Like, I think, it, it, again, it goes back to you can't always address every single need that you have, and you have to to be a little selective with the offseason you choose to go after certain positions. and And this was just ultimately a good offseason to just avoid ad rusher altogether. You know, we'll see. I think overall, you know, we're definitely not a grade for the draft. But how do you what what did you what did you feel after the 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 draft? Where you're like, well, what did we learn? Do you feel like you learned more about, or was this more a confirmation of what you already knew about how the team was going to pursue? The draft. Um, I think we learned some new stuff. Absolutely. I, I think the way that they view their defensive players was kind of a, a big thing. You know, we didn't get to see a ton of it. You know, a lot of the moves that they made last year defensively were really, you know, more largely traditional type players. You know, you got a Keller Witherspoon, who's a, an outside corner that exactly fits the mold of what you want in this defense. You take Ruben Foster, who's a prototypical linebacker type prospect, right? So you have uh, a lot of moves that just 
it made sense. They needed to find some talent at key positions, but I think the moves they made here do show that they're they're a little bit more forward thinking, right? With where maybe defense and, and the game is going. And so that just from an overall strategy standpoint is certainly encouraging to me. Again, time will tell whether they actually hit on the right players to fill those type of roles. But uh, I, I overall, I like the direction getting some offense first to help support your quarterback um, that you just signed to a massive long-term deal and then really going hard after versatile coverage defenders uh, over most of the rest of the draft uh, is, I think, you know, again, pass game first and your ability to throw the ball, uh, defend the pass are kind of the two most important things for success there, and they really kind of hit that direction. All right, so that does it for this week's episode where we covered the day three picks as well as our overall takeaways. Uh, We're going to go on another slight hiatus. I know we hit you with two episodes, and then we're going to go hibernate the way of the rest of the NFL media because uh, I was in Spain a couple weeks ago. David, you are going to Italia. Correct, yeah. So actually, like by the time you're listening to this, I will likely be on a plane headed to to italy i'm going to be there for a few weeks so yeah i think we're probably going to have two weeks where uh we don't have episodes and then hopefully try to get back into it maybe try to do something like a a mailbag is just kind of a way to to ease back into things after that but really once we we get back into things on a consistent basis i mean we're hitting uh probably some scheme month in there i would guess and then we're into like real football stuff training camp preseason right around the corner Yep. Remember that we do have our merch store. It is up and it is live in case you want to get a phone case, a pillow. You get a pillow, let me know, because that'd be honestly a little weird. But they're up there if you wanted to get one. Uh, we've got some wall art. We've got hashtag about to throw up onesies for your baby. Uh, we've got all manner of things that you can purchase. So go on to tpublic, dot com and search for Better Rivals and or 49ers, and you can find our stuff where you can purchase them. And if you don't already have your Better Rivals wallpaper that was designed by our very own Josie, Make sure that you get those and download them and pimp out your computer. So thanks again for tuning in to our draft recap. And as always, go Niners. Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.